Welcome to this edition of the Real Clear Politics Takeaway. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, America's college campuses have become a domestic battleground when it comes to the war between Israel and Hamas. The response on campuses to the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians has shocked some students, parents, and donors who believe that college presidents have not done enough to condemn Hamas and its supporters and have failed to protect their Jewish students. Some college administrators have defended the demonstrators, citing First Amendment rights and what some see as a newfound commitment to free speech. James S. Robbins is the academic dean of the Institute of World Politics, a private graduate school in Washington, D.C., and he has written a very interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled, My School Doesn't Tolerate Anti-Semitism, and we are happy to work with donors who are tired of giving to colleges that do. So, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Tell me first, what are you seeing on college campuses now, and what do you think the main problem is? Well, Andy, I, you know, I think that the events in Israel, the October 7th attacks and the response to that have really uncovered what was a long-term trend on campuses towards more radicalism, uh, less intellectual diversity, more groupthink, that general drift. And so when we see activists coming out blaming Israel like they did at Harvard, you know, those student groups who blamed Israel for the violence, chanting from the river to the sea, which basically means kick out all the Jews. These types of things, I mean, yes, I suppose it falls under the rubric of free speech, but it also could fall under the rubric of hate speech. And so seeing that being so outward on the campus, having these demonstrations be so large and so vocal, I think it was shocking to a lot of people. Well, you know, Jim, back in the 1960s, there was a slogan on the left, or maybe maybe we should call it a strategy, and it was called the Long March Through the Institutions. And it's an idea, it's been credited to this German student activist, his name was Rudy Dutschke, and it's associated with a group of leftists who felt that uh, the workers' revolution was not going to happen anytime soon, and the most fruitful thing a good radical could do uh, was to burrow into the existing power structure and work from within, and that the place to start was academia. So today, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that that project has not been a success. And I'm wondering, Jim, if you think this anti-Israeli sentiment on campuses and what some see as really naked anti-Semitism can be credited to that change in academia, uh, which you know has been going on now for the past six decades. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, if you look at how um, the professoriate has evolved over the last several decades and the diminishing intellectual diversity that you find on campuses, you know, kind of the party line has taken over. And uh, this drive towards, uh, you know, progressive thinking and intersectionality, I think the DEI emphasis is part of that. Uh, there was a very interesting article on this in the same edition of the journal as my piece that exposed what was going on at Ohio State with the faculty hiring and the diversity statements that they had to sign. And just, I mean, shocking stuff where the, where the people on the admissions, or rather on the hiring committees, were saying they were going to put more weight on the diversity statement than on the person's uh, you know, functional capacity, their teaching ability, or their, their uh, expertise. They're going to put more weight on the diversity statement. In some cases, they said, essentially, they weren't going to hire any uh, white candidates 
because they, you know, they felt that they needed to uh, have people of color, something like that. Okay, well, again, it's it's interesting that that schools are doing this. Uh, you know, you can call it racism. I certainly would. Uh, but anti-Semitism is part of this because in the critical thinking narrative that divides everybody up into either a, a victim or an oppressor, you know, they say that uh, that Jews are the oppressors in this case. They're the they're the colonizers, the Zionists, you know, or they lump them in with uh, the white people in America, right? That that. And it's funny because the the radical rightists, the neo Nazis, would say that uh, Jews are not white. And now you have the radical leftists saying Jews are too white. So really, they have to make up their mind. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's interesting how the far left and the far right uh, sometimes intersect like that. But I want to circle back to this idea of Israel as a colonizer. I, I think that's the term the left is using now. Again, going back to the left strategy, and I guess this goes all the way back to the 60s and maybe even before that, the idea was to harness the anti-colonial impulse that followed the Second World War. So you had Vietnam, you had Pan-Arab socialism, you had African socialism. And I'm wondering whether you think it is fair to view Israel through this same lens, that is, as a colonial power. Uh, I think it's the wrong lens. Uh, it's an extremely complex situation that you have in Israel. On the one hand, you have people who are indigenous to uh, to Israel back, you know, to the days of, of the kingdom of Judah. I mean, if you want to go back that far. Uh, so you have people who have been there for thousands of years. That's one part of it. And yes, you have some people who are new arrivals uh, or families of new arrivals. But And these are people who were kicked out of other countries. So, you know, who are the colonizers? Are they the 500,000 Moroccan Jews who were expelled from Morocco and had to find sanctuary in Israel? Are those the ones? Are they the, you know, 300,000 who were kicked out of Iran who had to find sanctuary in Israel? Are they just the displaced people who came out of Europe who were being held in concentration camps, you know, uh, allied run. And so not as like death camps, but still being penned up in Europe and no one knew what to do with them because their old homes were destroyed and no one wanted them back. Are they the colonizers? I mean, it's, you could make that argument and certainly people like Hamas do make that argument, but these were stateless people who found sanctuary in the only country in the world that was set aside for them and set aside under international law, set aside by the United Nations, and then defended through four wars to establish the borders that they have. So any way you cut it, Israel is not only a legitimate state, but everybody who lives there lives there legitimately. And also, by the way, it's one of the most diverse countries in the Middle East. It's the only true democracy in the Middle East, and it's been a great friend and ally of the United States. And when you look at these college presidents who now sort of defend the pro-Palestinian demonstrators on the basis of free speech and First Amendment rights, you said earlier that it's free speech, but it's also hate speech. Hate speech is a term that's very difficult to define. Free speech is something in First Amendment rights. I think we can pretty much recognize that for, for what it is. But this newfound support for free speech among these college presidents seems to me to be very selective. You can't think of another group that they would allow to say these things, 
create this kind of environment on college campuses, except for this particular instance. Oh, absolutely. And the problem uh, facing conservatives on campus has been longstanding. I mean, that's that's been going on for decades. Uh, the self-censorship that goes on on campuses of students who may not have the party line views of the progressives, but they just want to get their degree and leave, you know, so they just kind of shut up and, and uh, not make anything out of it because they're afraid of what would happen. You know, they, they would be accused of microaggressions or, you know, they use the wrong pronoun and suddenly therapists have to be called in. I mean, just the absurdity that goes on on college campuses over these types of issues, uh, you know, it's crazy. But so now we have these people coming out and, uh, you know, chanting whatever they're chanting and or saying, well, they're not really pro-Hamas, but they support the Hamas agenda, right? You know, these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And and suddenly uh, on college campuses, they say it's okay. Well, that's that's a, quite a bit more than a microaggression, in my opinion. Uh, you had the kids at Cornell uh, who couldn't go to the cafeteria, you know, the kosher cafeteria because they were being threatened to be killed. You know, again, a little bit more than using the wrong pronoun. Do you think that colleges will wake up to this, I mean, at this point? Because the spotlight's pretty strong right now. And you do have donors who are actively saying that they will cease giving money to these schools if this problem isn't addressed. Is it a wake-up call? Yeah, money talks. I mean, this is this is the reason why they're starting to pay attention, uh, particularly some of the statements that college administrators came out with initially that were completely watered down or, you know, ignored Israel. And then under pressure from donors, they came out with these stronger statements because the people who've been writing the checks have suddenly realized that these schools are, are, you know, professing things that are against their basic values and that it's institutionalized at the schools. This isn't like one or two people. It's the majority of the professors, the majority of the administrators, a great portion of the students, and certainly the loudest students, are all saying these things. So it's very important for donors to take another look at these schools. And maybe it's your alma mater. Maybe it was different 50 years ago. I'm sure it was, you know, 30 years ago, whenever. But take a look and uh, look at your donations, your institutional giving. These places are not what they used to be. And you know, if I can plug my own school, I mean, we're a national security school. We have no problem with calling out these things. I mean, my background is in counterterrorism. I worked for 10 years at DOD as a counterterrorism education specialist. So, you know, I look at Hamas and I just see a target group. I mean, so far as I'm concerned. So there are schools out there, and I mentioned a few in my piece, uh, where there, you know, still these values exist. And if donors are looking for places to, to uh, support that are not anti-Israel, not anti-America, then these schools are out there. So I'm wondering how, at the Institute of World Politics, you handle this kind of debate. Because I think what most of us who look at college campuses, and I have three kids, all roughly college age, one's out, two are in, I'm not really looking for them to be indoctrinated right or left. What I want them to do is be taught to ask questions, to approach a debate with an open mind, respect other people's points of views, and reason on their own. 
And it seems to me that that should be the goal of higher education. And I'm wondering how you handle that, because certainly you must have people who maybe, I hope you don't have students who support Hamas. I don't think any student should support Hamas, (laughs) but who would have you know, legitimate questions about uh, what Israel is doing right now or how they've handled the Palestinian situation. There are legitimate debates. And how do you handle them? Well, part of it is an educational philosophy. I mean, if you approach academe from the standpoint of educating students in how to think, how to critically inquire, things like that, as opposed to reaching the correct answer, which, mm. you know, I'm not sure exists. I mean, I, I always tell my students that they may leave they may not leave my class with all the answers but they will leave with all the questions uh, you know I, I kind of approach approach it from that way but you know that's kind of old school these days when many of these schools are there to indoctrinate kids yes. um, but at Institute of world politics we it, it, despite the name we try to keep politics out I mean you know it, there's a difference between discussing policy or discussing strategy and discussing politics. I mean, politics comes and goes depending on, you know, who's in power or what's going on. But American national interests, American strategy, foreign policy, these things, and traditionally have supposed to have been bipartisan and where partisanship ends at the shoreline. So in a way, it's easier for a national security and intelligence school like ours to try to rise above it try to not get into the politics so much, but really keep a focus on national interest. What's our strategy? How are we going to get there? Things like that. That's really what we focus on more. And yes, there are debates even over those questions, but they're not the same kind of things that you see going on at schools today where people are kind of pounded into an ideological uh, Procrustean bed. I want to ask you too, because I know you're a student of the, the Vietnam era, written a wonderful book on the politics of the Tet Offensive. And I'm wondering, when you look at what's going on on campuses today, and you think about what was happening in the 1960s, what's different and what's the same? I think it's much worse today. Because back in those days, there was still intellectual diversity amongst the professors and amongst the administrators. And I think people viewed education much more seriously back then, along the lines that we were discussing, as a way to train minds to think, not to bludgeon them into submission. I think free speech was much more valued back then. You know, of course, there were campus demonstrations and all these other things. You know, today it's much worse because it's much more pervasive. Uh, The institutions have been marched through. Right. It was just starting back in the 60s. Now that march has been completed. And so this is the result that we have. And do you think that that march has extended to other institutions? I'm thinking entertainment, but but also, you know, corporate America, sports, a project that seemed to have started at the universities. Those people have gone on to positions of power within the government, certainly, uh, but certainly within these other private institutions as well. In other words, the long march, you know, continued and marched out of the universities uh, into other parts of uh, American society. Oh, certainly. I mean, it's a totalitarian project when you get right down to it. Uh, They'd march through everything if they could. Uh, Faith institutions, 
as you say, you know, big business, whatever. I mean, they're, they're instituting all of these guidelines and, and structures and approval processes and everything to impose their view of reality on everybody else. But I think there's pushback. I mean, clearly there is. You see this in opinion polls. Let's talk about universities. See how many people now are saying that a, that a college degree isn't worth it. The costs have been driven up extraordinarily high. In fact, the costs for education in the last 30 years have risen faster than any other sector, even faster than healthcare. And 100% of that increase is in administration. It's not in faculty salaries, I can guarantee you that. It's in the staff. It's in all of these useless additions that they've made to university staff for God knows what progressive reason. And that's what has raised up the tuition to extraordinary heights. And as the tuition rates have gone up, the education quality has gone down. So people are making sort of a rational conclusion that, hey, maybe I don't need this dumb degree. Maybe I can go off and flourish in my life doing wonderful things, you know, that I learned at a trade school or learned in some other way and not even mess with it. And when you add to that the declining college population just because of demographic shifting, now the alarms are going off at these schools like, hey, maybe we've made a mistake. Yeah. Well, I said that the title of your article was uh, My School Doesn't Tolerate Anti-Semitism, and we are happy to work with donors who are tired of giving to colleges that do. I'm just wondering, uh, it's been a little while since October 7th, are you seeing uh, any more interest from donors who might be turning to uh, a different model than the model that they've been used to? Oh, yes. We have seen this because October 7th and the response to it really tore the mask off of what's going on on these campuses. I think that the radicals were so emboldened by their own power on campus that they felt that they could do anything and that nobody would respond to it. But finally, I mean, it was just so abrasive and, and so bold that the donor class has woken up to this and said, wait a minute, this this isn't what we're paying for. We're, we're trying to like pay for higher education to produce good citizens, right? That's the implicit bargain with a donor in a school because the, the donors can't call the shots with the school. So they're basically entrusting the school with a donation to create good citizens. Well, this is what you're producing. Uh, so yes, we have seen changes. I mean, with our school, we're a very small school. We're very specialized. Uh, we work on a small budget. There's not a lot of waste in what we do. And, uh, you know, we're seeing more interest from people who are who are curious, like, hey, how how do you educate people? Like, what are you doing? And a lot of our students go into government service. They go into the national security or intelligence communities. I mean, it's very tip of the spear what we do. And so that gets a certain amount of attention, too, because people like to learn about national security or spies or things like that. So. It's It's been interesting for us to see this response, but on the other hand, we've always known what we do. Uh, it's just interesting to be discovered for that. Well, Jim, I'm happy for that, and we wish you well with it. It's an important job. So thank you for taking the time to talk today. It's a really important topic, and one we will be following on Real Clear Politics and on Real Clear Education as well. 
We are here most Tuesdays and Fridays now, so bookmark this podcast, come back often. And as ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Always a good idea, and I guess it's also very much in keeping with today's discussion. So thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.